You're listening to Pistola Endocrine Podcast. Welcome to another Pistola Podcast. Today we'll be talking about pediatric diabetes care in a small city. My name is Dr. Daniel Mack. I am an assistant professor of pediatrics in the Department of Pediatric Endocrinology and Metabolism Diabetes at Arkansas Children's Hospital in Little Rock, Arkansas. Today we have two wonderful guest speakers also part of Arkansas Children's, we have our clinical diabetes educator, Morgan Butler. She's been part of Arkansas Children's for over eight years now and has been part of the diabetes team for about five years. And we also have Heather Johnson. She's our advanced nurse practitioner uh, with a doctorate in nursing practice at our Northwest campus in Springdale, Arkansas. And she's been with Arkansas Children's for the last 15 years. So thank you very much for joining us today on this podcast. Thank you for having us. We're excited. Yeah, we're excited to be here. Yeah. So I'm relatively new to this small city scene, having, like I said, previously lived in major northeastern cities. Um, But again, I'm thankful to have both of you on to talk about this topic, which is, I think, very good and able to generalize to to other areas in the country as well. So despite its name, interestingly, Little Rock is not technically a small city. According to the National Center for Education Statistics, a small city is defined as having a population less than 100,000 people, whereas in 2021, Little Rock's population was just over 200,000. But I think nonetheless, Little Rock and Arkansas Children's as a whole can serve as an example when discussing the challenges, barriers, as well as the benefits of being the sole pediatric diabetes center for the state. So with Arkansas Children's covering such an expansive state, Morgan, how does one cover and serve our population? Certainly. So just to give a better um, kind of idea, let's talk about the makeup of our team here um, at Arkansas Children. So our system has 12 endocrine providers, specifically eight board certified endocrinologists and three certified APRNs. Um, In addition to that, we have eight diabetes specific nurses who help cover this team. As part of our interdisciplinary care, um, we also utilize social workers, dietitians, and psychologists. We have two outpatient clinic locations, um, one here in central Arkansas where uh, I am and um, one in northwest Arkansas. Uh, As a reference, these clinics are approximately 200 miles apart. So that covers a decent majority um, around these two major metropolitan areas as far or major in regards to Arkansas, at least. And so to our big areas here, um, but we also have satellite clinics um, in Northeast Arkansas uh, where certain specialties can travel and see patients in that area. But those aren't as routinely used um, on a day-to-day basis or even a weekly basis for a special, uh, for a specific specialty. So um, our team may see patients there once a quarter or a little, a little more frequently, um, but that's not a primary site where we see patients each week. Um, as far as patients, we have approximately 2,100 patients that uh, follow in our two major locations. Uh, and then the new onset numbers are rising each year. Um, into 2021, our clinic diagnosed 378 patients with type 1 or type 2 diabetes or some sort of need for insulin initiation. And that was leaps and bounds over our 2020 numbers, which were 255. And we thought that was a, a large jump. So you can see our trends are definitely escalating and we're um, being called to, to, to cover um, 
the majority of these uh, these types of patients um, here in the state. We definitely have a large patient population, and I'm always impressed that some families travel two, three hours in order to make it to their appointments. So we know that physical distance is a major barrier. Um, and I recently saw a nice descriptive study from Eastern North Carolina that showed that patients living further away from clinic were less likely to adhere to the recommended visit schedule. Is this something that we're also seeing in Arkansas? This is certainly a problem that we see with some of our patients. Um, Arkansas has 75 counties and about half of those are considered rural. So despite having two clinics, we still have patients that drive upwards of three hours each way in order to see a qualified pediatric endocrine provider. So we do have some resources that we're able to tap into. Um, Arkansas does provide non-emergent transportation resources, but the family must have a Medicaid qualification and that visit needs to be set up two days in advance. So there are some um, outlying circumstances where they'll allow less than that 48 hours notice, but it's gotta be kind of an emergent situation or or, a a hefty need um, in order to be seen sooner. So as Arkansas doesn't have an advanced public transportation system um, within our state, we're a little limited um, in these travel resources. And so while it's fantastic that we do have um, the non-emergent transportation, it is limited to our kids with Medicaid. So something that we do have to kind of look look more inward into our hospital resources, um, our social work department, we provide gas cards. So if our families um, have an unexpected visit that they need to come to or their child is is sick and um, needs to be evaluated in the uh, emergency department for any reason, we might have um, that ability to uh, to tap into. So I know Traveling to to clinic appointments can be challenging, especially those patients that live in the rural parts of the state. Um, And then throw in this past two years where the current pandemic has has really made it difficult as well. Um, But I do feel like one plus to come out of it is that um, a lot of practices are starting to embrace telehealth. It seems like it would be ideal for patients in this setting um, that especially live in the rural parts of the state in order to to make it to their appointments. Heather, is this something that we're seeing that is being utilized more and is it beneficial? So absolutely. You know, the use of telehealth in our practice is not new. Um, We have used telehealth for several years. Um, When I moved up to the Northwest campus, our campus opened just over four years ago. We did use telehealth as a means to bridge to our Little Rock campus before we had a pediatric um, endocrinologist on staff, you know, for inpatient billing practices, we had to bridge to Little Rock for consult services to the endocrinology team in Little Rock. Um, And we still continue to use telehealth today um, on a routine basis. Um, We also have different subspecialists that link in to the patients from the Little Rock campus to complete their visits. So telehealth is not new, but, you know, when COVID hit, we definitely began to rely on it more as an innovative way to meet the patient's needs. Um, But as we all know, to have an effective diabetes visit, there are several things that we need. We need to look at blood sugars. So we need a way of the family, if they're not sharing their continuous glucose monitor in the cloud with us, we need them to send us the blood sugars for that telehealth visit. Um, We also need, if they're on technology, we need their pump download. 
Um, and what we really need is real-time labs, or if they could go to the PCP who is closer to have lab drawn and sent to us. So what we started to run into were tech issues. So yes, we do have families that are very tech savvy and were, you know, had their uploads ready for us. Um, and then we started to see who were we really having effective visits with? Were those the patients that we needed to see, needed to get through to? Or were we just checking a box where we could say, yes, we had this visit with the family and we can refill their meds? Um, and we were having more difficulty offering the services that we need to to adhere to the ADA standards, the registered dietitian, the social work, the child psychologist. Um, so what I have found in my own practice is to really meet the needs of the patient, we need to have that face-to-face -face interaction, especially during the time of COVID. You know, patients are behind on their well-child check, their other subspecialists. Um, it gives us an opportunity to really have that face-to-face -face interaction, that emotional component, um, catch up on their immunizations if needed, and we can go ahead and have those other consult services come in, such as the registered dietitian or social worker, and meet the needs of the family. Plus, we need to have the, those real-time labs, the point-of-care testing, um, and the downloads. So, you know, telehealth, of course, has been described as being effective in, in several papers. It is great to have it as a resource, but you know, I feel like our families definitely prefer face-to-face -face if possible. I agree. Definitely can't beat that in-person face-to-face interaction where we really just connect with the family on a different level. Yes. Um, I feel like one of the other challenges is just having enough resources to care for our patients. You know, our diabetes team is, is big and it encompasses multidisciplinary um, specialists involved as well. And how does serving our population um, with the availability of resources, which not only includes meeting the demands of the, the patient volume, um, but also the different cultures and, and diversities, um, how does that play a role? And first, what does our, our clinic appointments look like and, and how is it broken down? We have the data that supports our standards, right? We know that patients who are seen on a regular basis, ideally quarterly, um, are more closely followed for assessment and are going to be at a, at a lesser risk for these complications. Uh, we have found that having a standardized way of doing that has helped the process. A few years ago, our team established what we call the annual visit. Each, each year when their labs are due, uh, the patient sees the provider and the diabetes educator, but they're also evaluated by the social worker and the dietitian. A diabetes educator reviews patients before clinic, um, and we look at who qualifies. So when is the last time their labs, they had labs, what they do for their labs? Uh, when's the last time they saw an RD or a social worker? If it's getting close to a year or if it's been more than a year, they're absolutely going to see those resources. Um, and we're going to mark that in our medical records so that the whole team is aware going through clinic as a if clinic can get very busy throughout the day. We already kind of have that designation of which kids need to be seen. So even if the A1C is stable and things are going well, we still have a process to help fine tune any needs that the patient has. This continuity just really helps catch smaller concerns before they become complications. Um, for example, 
you know, our dietitians, they'll do a 24-hour diet recall, and that can easily help us catch risks for cholesterol issues or gather information um, in regard to food insecurities that the social worker can then address and, and give resources for. So these are available at every visit. We're ideally always going to have our dietitian and our social worker there, but at least once a year, they are laying eyes on the patient and family and seeing what those needs are. And that is really just kind of transformed the way that we give care in our clinic. And so while this process has dramatically helped, we've also got to be prepared for if these team members are unavailable or they've got a family that was seen um, before the current one you're currently seeing and they they need some extra time. They've got to be able to budget their time and and resource. And so unfortunately, sometimes we have to prioritize um, who they're seeing each time. Right. So, I mean, there's a lot involved in our pediatric diabetes visits and being the, the only, I guess, referring center in the state, there's, there's a lot of onus on us. And how do we determine whether or not we have enough resources or enough personnel to, to really meet the needs of the, the population? Sure. So one thing I thought that would be interesting to look at, um, you know, our patients require a referral from the primary care provider. So I thought it'd be interesting to look at the number of primary care providers in the state. Um, so what I found based on the latest statistics that were posted is that Arkansas has 13.6 primary care providers per 10,000. And of course, this includes internal med, family practice, general practice, OBGYN, and pediatrics. So 658 of, of 4,094 are pediatricians. Um, so 13.6 per 10,000. Comparing that to Oklahoma and Texas, I was actually surprised. Oklahoma is 7.3 per 10,000 and Texas is 7 per 10,000. So Arkansas is actually in a, a good position when I compare it to those two states, but that just demonstrates that we have the capacity for growth um, and expansion. But when we look closer at um, our resources for the specialists that we require, for our patients to meet with. Um, we have 2.3 registered dietitians per 10,000 in the state. Also, we have 2.3 psychologists per 10,000 in the state. And we have 10.8 social workers per 10,000 in the state. One plus one benefit for our two campuses that I did notice is that in regards to the dietitian, over 75% of those are concentrated to um, Central Arkansas and the Northwest Arkansas region. So um, one thing we also have to consider when we're thinking about the more rural parts of our state are where these resources are located. Um, so I thought those were some interesting statistics. Those are very interesting statistics. And I mean, it just, again, emphasizes pediatrics diabetes care requires a whole team. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. So when at least when I've seen in, in some of the patients that I've, I've encountered, there are some other um, unique cultural differences and, and barriers that sometimes need to be addressed as well. And how does, um, again, being in a relatively smaller market, how do we um, have the resources or do we have the resources to meet these specific cultural needs or in, including language barriers? 
Sure. So, you know, when I practiced in on the Little Rock campus, I, I did use interpreters from time to time. Um, the Little Rock campus sits in Pulaski County, where about 6% of the population is Hispanic. Um, when I moved to Northwest Arkansas, it, it, it holds a different type of diversity. So we have um, a, a huge working culture. We have a large um, population that moves here for factory work. And we also have a large population that moves here for the corporate work. Um, so about 16% of the population in Washington County is non-English speaking. Um, we have a very large Hispanic population. So we rely heavily on our um, Spanish speaking interpreters. We have about five in-house. We just um, added a few more recently. And then we also have use of iPads that we use. And honestly, for me, it's a last resort. And my patients definitely prefer the um, in-room in interpreters. They definitely get to know the families. Um, they get to know even the visit types. They know uh, the tone. Um, they, they are huge help and benefit to my visits. An interesting population that we do serve in Northwest Arkansas is our Marshallese population. Um, Springdale actually has the largest Marshallese population in the U.S., so we do have an in-house Marshallese interpreter. Um, so that's very beneficial as well. So serving these populations has been a great experience, and we're very lucky to have our in-house interpreters for that. So we know what makes up our appointments and our visits in the clinical setting, but majority of the time our patients are at home or at school. Um, so I, I've had from ex previous experience and, and here too that the school nurses really play an integral part of, of our diabetes care as well. Um, do we have any relationship with them and, and what does that look like? So absolutely, we rely heavily on the school nurses as a support structure for our families and the patients. Um, oftentimes they bridge the gap between visits. Um, so they assist with reporting blood sugar levels. They assist with giving the long acting insulin dose for us. If we're having issues with the child receiving it in the morning or at night, we can shift to say, hey, um, why don't we have the school nurse give it? And then that's one less thing you have to worry about. So we're ensured that they get it Monday through Friday at a certain time. Um, so the school nurse is a huge resource for us. So you can imagine when COVID hit and in the state of Arkansas, we called it crisis mode. Our, our schools went to crisis mode and we went to virtual learning. We didn't have that support of the school nurse. And that came through um, the effects of that came through in the patients that we saw in clinic. You know, our, our patients, some of them had to shift to being the caretaker for the younger kids that were staying at home while the other, while the parents went to work. Um, it just had a huge profound effect on our kids. So we really saw the need for our patients to get back in school and have, you know, those scheduled meals, that breakfast and lunch, that snack, and have the school nurse helping with their diabetes care and having that, you know, that adult hand on them to help and having that communication bridge to our clinic. So they're a huge resource for us. We rely heavily on the school nurse. You're right. They are 
definitely vital members of our pediatric diabetes team. And I think that's one of the benefits of, of being a primary referral center is that there is some consistency and, and they look to us as the, as the leaders in the knowledge um, and, and providing the resources to help their students. I know that we, we have a lot of education and conferences with our school nurses. Tell me more about that, Morgan. Sure, absolutely. So just to kind of kind of break down what Arkansas looks like in regards to school nurses. And so our student population is over 743,000. And to cover all of those kids, not just kids with diabetes, but all of those kids, we have a thousand school nurses in the state. And this is made up of nurses that are full-time, that are part-time, or that are just contract nurses. So nurses that are available to come oversee insulin dosing or um, whatever whatever there's a need for in the event that like the full-time nurse is out. So a thousand nurses across the state covering over a thousand campuses. So we have multiple nurses who cover, you know, one and two campuses. And, you know, in your smaller cities, they may have the elementary school and the middle school kind of in the same area. So it's a little bit easier for coverage, but oftentimes their their student population, you know, is going to grow with that as well. And this is over 261 districts. So it is absolutely vital that they have all of the resources they need. Our team frequently says that school nurses are our boots on the ground, Right. They spend as much time with these kids as their parents in some instances. And so it's imperative that our school nurses not only feel comfortable, but also confident in diabetes care. Um, We're lucky we have a program here through our um, the system. It's called the School Nurse Academy. And we select topics for school nurses um, on a yearly basis that, and then we take those topics and we travel and we go to school nurses in their towns, in their closest co-op settings so that we reach them where they are. And we teach them about a number of things, but this, um, in the last couple of years, we've had a very, uh, we've been lucky to very have, have a big diabetes presence from our team in order to educate not only on um, the basics for new nurses, like how to calculate carbs, how to give insulin, how to teach uh, teachers and coaches how to be comfortable um, with dosing emergency medications like glucagon, um, but also more, uh, more closely understanding the relationship with technology. And so we've got school nurses who know the ins and outs of um, insulin pumps. And while they may not be the one in charge of doing pump site changes, they can more thoroughly assess if something's going wrong or troubleshoot if there's a problem with the pump or, or, or the CGM, which is where we're definitely seeing the majority of our patient population being led to, you know, more and more, even if they're still remaining on um, MDI injections, a lot of these kids have CGMs and the number of nurses who, the, the peace of mind that brings for these kids who are using CGMs so that they know what they're doing, you know, throughout the day um, is important. So having them fully understand what those arrow indications mean or, you know, what, what it's okay to dose on, when do we need to kind of troubleshoot and do a finger stick instead and keeping this education up to date, not just giving it to them once and then kind of backing off or walking away, but having a system that continuously updates that education and gives it to them, um, their access to us, like you said, being the number, uh, being the only pediatric 
uh, facility um, in the state in regards to, you know, this, this specialty health care, um, they're going to look to us. They want to know what the what the best way to do things is, and they're going to want advice. And so we are um, available to give that to them. And so um, it's it's a very important and um, something that we're very proud of that we're able to to offer the school nurses. I agree. I mean, it really is incredible how much effort and teamwork is involved in caring for our patients with, with diabetes. And like you said, the, the school nurses, the community physicians, the, the families and patients really look to us as the leaders and knowledge and, and having the resources. Sometimes it's a lot of pressure, but I feel like it's a source of pride um, being that kind of beacon of hope and, and center that, that really is able to provide quality and up-to-date and really best care for our, our patients. Um, and again, one of the benefits of being the only pediatric diabetes care center in the state in, of Arkansas is that um, we're able to really gather our data, analyze it, and, and work towards projects like quality improvement, um, outreach. So I think that's another major benefit of, of our diabetes program. Um, no, you're exactly right. Again, like you said, there's there's going to be that that pressure to have the resources to meet all of these needs that these families have. But being such um, a large facility, we do we do tend to have those resources that we can tap into. And even if it's not something our group specifically can provide, being able to kind of closely associate with other specialties is is a big is a big plus. Right. So, I mean, I think. We talked about the challenges and benefits of, of being our primary diabetes center, but we, as in the short time I've been here, know that um, all the the resources and, and teamwork is is just leading to better improvement, and um, it just speaks to the the new clinics that we're adding, um, the new satellite areas, outreach um, centers that we can really tap into um, the entire state. So we're really trying to create this medical home and an open work environment to, to make sure that we're providing consistent, really top of the, the line care to, to our patients. Um, so thank you so much for this wonderful discussion, Heather and Morgan. Um, I hope our listeners really got a glimpse of what our pediatric diabetes program looks like in this smallish city, um, including what challenges, as well as the benefits um, that it entails. I think there are many examples of pediatric diabetes centers across the country that are in a similar environment. And I think by discussing these challenges and the positivity, the goal is for us all to improve as a whole. Absolutely. I think that concludes our podcast. Thank you for listening. Yes. Thank, Thank you, you guys so much. Us. Thank you for having us. Mm-hmm.